me this afternoon, if you would please, to uh, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, the necessity of the new birth. And I want to ask this afternoon that there would be no moving around. Uh, it's really been heavy on my heart this week, this particular text. And as we think about going uh, into a new year, the thing that some people here need to consider most, without a doubt, is the new birth. Not a new year, but the new birth. You know, the Apostle Paul said to the uh, Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13 that we need to examine ourselves to make certain that we're really in the faith. And I believe that we need to do that. And so I, I would ask that you would pray for me and pray for those around you. And uh, pray that God would have his way and his will uh, during this time. And again, that there would just be no uh, moving around. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? The necessity of the new birth. Jesus said in, in uh, John chapter 3, beginning there in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Father, speak to our hearts today. May your Holy Spirit illuminate each heart and mind. To what Jesus was saying here to this religious but lost man. God, we thank you for the new birth. That it changes everything about us. As the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We thank you for the change that you bring about. And for the heavenly hope that we have and the assurance and also the strength and the wisdom and the counsel for everyday living. 
And Father, there are many perhaps even in here today who are missing out on that because they don't know you. They've not been reconciled to you. They've not been justified. They've not been set free from their sin and the penalty of their sin. God, I pray that you would work your work in them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to listen to how one writer introduces this text. He says, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. This line from an old spiritual accurately describes many in the church, he writes. Outwardly they identify with Christ, but inwardly they have never been genuinely converted. Because they cling to a false profession, they fool themselves into thinking that they are on the narrow path leading to life, when in reality they are on the broad road leading to destruction. To make matters worse, their self-deception is often reinforced by well-meaning but undiscerning Christians who naively embrace them as true believers. Such confusion stems from the watered-down pseudo-gospels that are propagated from far too many pulpits. Cheap grace, market-driven ministry, emotionalism, subjectivism, and an indiscriminate inclusivism has all infiltrated the church with devastating consequences. As a result, almost any profession of faith is, a, is affirmed as genuine, even from those whose lives manifest no signs of true fruit. For many, no one's faith is to be questioned. Meanwhile, key New Testament passages regarding the danger of false faith and the need for self-examination go unheeded. Folks, those are powerful words that we dismiss to our own peril. You see, while everyone dies, not everyone goes to heaven. Now that is a lie that the devil would love to have you believe because if you believe that, then you will not see the point or the urgency in preparing for eternity. I want you to think with me a moment about a story Jesus told in Luke 16 that points out how not everybody goes to heaven. He says, now there was a certain rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he might warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now with that being said, let's come back to John chapter 3. You know, John chapter 2 closed with the thought that Jesus would not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in a man's heart. And then in chapter 3, he begins with a certain man, the story of a certain man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. And we see that Jesus was willing to speak with Nicodemus because Nicodemus was an honest seeker. Now folks, what we see in our text is nothing short of an admonition from the Lord himself of what it means to be saved. I'm going to give you three simple words this morning. The first of all being conviction. The first point is conviction. Look back with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now there are two main characters in this story. There's the Lord Jesus on the one hand and there's Nicodemus on the other hand. But ladies and gentlemen, there is a third main character as well and that is the Holy Spirit. We're introduced to this man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and he was identified as a ruler of the Pharisees. Now that implies that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. They were 70 rulers who were very much like the Supreme Court in the land of Israel at the time. Only the most faithful and the most religious could be appointed to such a position. And so we see that Nicodemus is a very influential man, he's a very powerful man, and he's also a very religious man, but religion in and of itself is not adequate. If it were adequate, Nicodemus would have been at peace. And Jesus would have simply told Nicodemus to go home and get some sleep and quit worrying that he was on his way to heaven. But that's not what Jesus told him at all. You know, folks, man is religious because he is searching for God. He is longing for something better. He is longing for peace with God. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we read that God has put eternity into our hearts. 
Romans 1 tells us that we all know that there is a God and so that makes all men equally without excuse. Pascal, the French philosopher, said that there is a God-shaped vacuum within each human heart. Man is incurably religious. And that is why when missionaries go all over the world, even into some of the very dark corners of the world, and they find remote tribes, what do they always find? They always find some type of altars and some type of idols that even people in the remote parts of the world are worshiping. Religion is man's attempt to reach up to God, but folks, it will never save us. The prophet Isaiah says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. Religion in and of itself is nothing if religion is all we have. Folks, something has to be changed within us at the very core of our nature. Nicodemus was longing for something more and so he comes to Jesus by night. Without a doubt there's this restlessness in his heart. Now maybe some say he might have come to Jesus by night because both men would have been very busy during the day. During the day we see that the multitudes were flocking to hear Jesus. And so maybe by coming by night Nicodemus thinks he'll have more of a private one-on-one, a lengthy conversation with Jesus. Or perhaps there was some kind of concern on Nicodemus' heart for what others would think if they saw him, a leader in Israel, going to Jesus. Some have pointed out in the Qumran community. The Qumran community was a community basically of monks out near the Dead Sea. Some people try to say maybe John the Baptist had some kind of associations with the Qumran community. But in the Qumran community they held that it was a noble thing to study the law deep up into the night hours. There's no evidence to suggest that's what's being implied here though. Others have pointed out that John has a fondness for double meanings. Like later on when Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room and Jesus tells Judas Iscariot what you're about to do, go and do quickly. And John says, Judas Iscariot slipped out and it was night. In other words, not only was it literally night, but it was a dark moment when the Son of Man was betrayed. Could that be hinted at here? Nicodemus is in spiritual darkness, so he comes to Jesus by night, symbolic of the darkness that his soul was in. Maybe we're to read some of that into this. But folks, I believe what we are chiefly intended to see here is that Nicodemus is a man under conviction. The Holy Spirit is working on Nicodemus. You know, in John 16, Jesus points out that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. Nicodemus states that he knew Jesus was of God. He had seen the miracles and he's under conviction. 
Now, what is so significant is this ruler of the Jews with all of his religion was a very dissatisfied man because, again, something is missing in his life. Now that seems a bit strange to us, seeing that Nicodemus was a rich man and he was a religious man. Rabbinic tradition states that Nicodemus was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. And yet there was no satisfaction. He's longing for something better. He's longing for peace with God. What do we see here? We see the Spirit of God at work here drawing Nicodemus to Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Folks, that's what's happening here. Now we can criticize Nicodemus for coming at night saying he was afraid of what people might think. We know it shouldn't matter what people might think. But folks, before we're too hard on Nicodemus, let's remember that at least he did something. He had questions in his heart that he wanted to know more and he went to the right place at the right time and he spoke to the right person. Perhaps some of you need to do what Nicodemus did. You need to get along with Jesus. Because the spirit of the living God is working on you. And there's an emptiness inside of your heart. And the spirit of God is drawing you to Christ. Instead of running away from that, you need to get along with the Lord. And you need to ask him to continue to deal with you. I fear today that we are missing one of the key ingredients in conversion. People hear a message on the new birth and they think, you know, that's nice. I think I'll go, go down front and I'll fill, up, fill out a commitment card and join the church and I'll do this and that. Uh, you know, it's time I do something like that. It's, it's not really much more than thinking, you know, honey, we need to go out to eat somewhere tonight. But folks, in the Bible, we see the need of conviction, conviction of our sin and of our lostness. We're so quick today to get somebody to join. Or as parents, we're so quick to want our kids to make a profession of faith. We see other kids joining and we think, honey, isn't it time for you to do that too? And what we do is we discount and we try to hurry up this whole process of conversion. Or maybe we even want to save people the agony of wrestling with God over the conviction that's in their soul. We want to try to save them from some pain. But folks, let them struggle. Let them wrestle. Because a heavenly thing is taking place in their hearts. Don't try to discount that in people. Don't try to save them from that. Let them be miserable for as long as it takes. Keep in mind a heavenly transaction is going on. 
Now, if conviction is happening to somebody during a service, that's great. But, but while conviction may be almost instantaneous for some, conviction may also be taking place over a period of days or even weeks or months. Some people get to where they can't hardly sleep at night or they can't eat. It's like they've got to get along with God and they've got to deal with this heaviness in their hearts. Often, if it happens in a church service, it's something that's been building. Now, I realize this is a process that is different for everybody, but my point is, don't get in a hurry with this. Let the Holy Spirit work on somebody's heart. We see Nicodemus, a man under conviction. Second word I want you to write down is confrontation. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus gets right to the point. A person cannot go to heaven without the new birth. Folks, Jesus didn't say... It would simply be a good thing. He said it is a necessary thing. It is a divine necessity. And Nicodemus is talking like a man who's beating around the bush under conviction. I've been talking to people before and the subject matter gets brought up about the way of salvation. And you can tell when somebody is under conviction sometimes. And they'll want to change the focus. They'll want to change the subject matter. They'll want to talk about anything other than what you've begun talking about. They might stop you and change the subject and say something like, Preacher, do you think we're near the end of time? And they want to get into a a discussion about eschatology eschatology or something. The study of end time events. They want to change the subject to something else. Maybe Nicodemus was a little bit like that. And Jesus doesn't allow him to get away with it. Jesus goes straight to the point. Jesus says, Nicodemus, one must be born again. Or literally, born from above. Now as William Hendrickson points out in his commentary on John, we take the word must to be a moral duty on the part of man. In other words, you need to do whatever it takes to be born again. But as Will Hendrickson points out, it's actually a divine decree. It is God laying down an eternal divine decree saying a man must be born again if he wants to come to the kingdom of heaven. The Greek word means from above, but it also carries the idea that he needs to be born anew. He needs to be born afresh. There's got to be some type of quickening. There's got to be some type of awakening, some type of change that takes place in his heart. And I'll tell you why. 
You may want to write down Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. And this passage demonstrates why there's got to be a change that takes place in the very heart of a man. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind a change has got to take place a radical change A radical change from above that only God can bring about because, ladies and gentlemen, you and I both were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were under the, apart from Christ, we were under the just condemnation of a holy God. And there was nothing, and there is nothing that we can do of our own accord about our predicament. You've heard me say before, there's the first birth, the physical birth, and there's also the second birth, the spiritual birth. The Bible talks about that. Likewise, there's the first death, which is the physical death, and there's the second death, which is the spiritual death. To be born only once means that you die twice. Not only physically, but you also die spiritually. But to be born twice means that you only die once if Jesus tarries. But you don't die spiritually because you've been made spiritually alive. You've been quickened, and so you have eternal life folks what Jesus is pointing out here in verse in in verses um, three and following he's pointing out that you and I cannot go to heaven as we are in verse six Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, the first birth, the, uh, the physical birth in and of itself does not make you ready, does not prepare you, does not equip you to be able to go to heaven. Again, Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. If religion alone were enough, then Nicodemus would have been qualified, but religion alone is not sufficient. Because all religion does is dress up the old nature. Some of you may remember a fable I told you about two and a half years ago. In June of 2014, I told you a a cute little fable that I think is fitting here. And it illustrates all this. There's an old story about two courtiers of a certain king who wearied their monarch with their incessant arguments as to whether or not a person had to be born a gentleman or whether he could become a gentleman by training. 
Now the king finally dismissed them from the court and ordered them to go out into the world and seek conclusive proof for their claims. A year to date they had to present their evidence. The year passed. The courtier who said that one could become a gentleman had traveled traveled far. He was in a distant land and he was in despair uh, because of no proof for his argument when all of a sudden he was astonished by something that he saw. He had ordered a cup of hot chocolate and to his amazement he saw bringing to him that cup of hot chocolate the innkeeper's cat. Remember this is a fable. The innkeeper's cat was dressed in a tuxedo and had been trained to stand on his hind legs, stand up straight like a man and balance a silver dish in his hand holding the beverage or the food and delivering that to the patrons. He saw the implications at once. If a cat could be trained to do a thing like that, why couldn't a man be trained to become a gentleman? It proved his point. He paid the innkeeper a huge sum of money to secure the cat and he traveled back to the king. Meanwhile, news of this discovery had come to the ears of the other courtier. He was in despair. He thought, surely I've lost the contest. But only a matter of days before appearing before the king, he saw something in a shop window that brought a smile to his face. He made the purchase and he kept it hidden from sight. He tucked it away inside of a box with a lid. It was the day of the trial. The first courtier presented the cat to the king to prove that anyone could be trained and dressed up to become civilized or to become a true gentleman. Now as the king sat on his throne, the remarkable cat in court attire made its way standing erect carrying a tray of hot chocolate to the king. Everybody applauded. And they looked with pity upon the other courtier who obviously had just lost his case. But the other man was ready. With a bow to the king, he opened a box that contained his proof. Out jumped a dozen white mice. And instantly the civilized cat forgot all about his culture and training. And once again he was nothing more than a barnyard cat. That's all religion can do. It dresses us up on the outside without changing our nature on the inside. Given the chance we become the barnyard cat again unless a change has happened on the inside. You see, folks, in religion, religion tries to change a man from the outside in, and that'll never happen. It takes the new birth that changes a man from the inside out. Not the outside in, but the inside out. And that's something that's got to happen to every one of us if we're going to see the kingdom of heaven. Leon Morris says, man's nature is so gripped by sin that an activity of the very spirit of the living God is a necessity if he's to be associated with God's kingdom. 
You must be born again. There's no quibbling about it. There's no question about it. You must be born again. And where the new birth happens, there is spiritual life. And that spiritual life changes a man or a woman forever. Thirdly, I want you to write down the word confusion. The word confusion. Look with me at verses 4 and also verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then down in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? To Nicodemus, Jesus' words made no sense at all. He's trying to figure this whole thing out. Let's see. Somehow or another, I've got to get back inside of my mother and be born all over again. Now, folks, that points out something. The new birth transcends human logic. A lost man doesn't understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The things of God seem foolish to a lost man. 1 Corinthians 1.21 talks about the foolishness of preaching. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. A lost man thinks he's got to earn it. The Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. Man's ways, man's logic is that I've got to earn my way. I've got to earn my approval with God. I've got to perform enough good deeds to make God love me. Folks, do you realize that in surveys across America, sad to say, even in the evangelical church, about 60 or 70 percent of America believes that? That a man to some degree has got to figure out his own salvation and earn his own salvation and be good enough to receive it? That's sad that most believe that. Christianity is a a matter of grace. The Bible gives Abraham as an illustration of this. Before Abraham had done a single thing, the Bible says Abraham believed God and God credited unto him as righteousness. It wasn't the law. Abraham lived before that. It wasn't circumcision. That came after Abraham believed God and God credited unto him as righteousness. That's a picture of the grace of God. Jesus explains the new birth here in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A person's got to be saved, Jesus said, first of all, through water. And then he said, through water and the Spirit. What in the world did Jesus mean by that? Scholars write a number of possible meanings. Some say that it refers to the water that breaks at birth. In other words, Jesus was saying... 
before you can see heaven you've got to come into existence to begin with and, and be born physically a physical birth has got to precede the spiritual birth now there's problems with that though how about a child who dies in the womb and so the water breaking at birth is not the best explanation a kissing cousin to that thought is that the water refers to the male seed now that seems very unusual to us but there were rivers of ink spilled on this thing in ancient Jewish writings among the rabbis and so they believe Jesus is saying you got to be conceived physically before you can be born uh, spiritually but that seems to go without saying others say it refers to John's baptism which is a baptism of repentance and so by water Jesus was saying to Nicodemus that in addition to belief there's got to be repentance others say it's a reference to Christian baptism but however this ordinance of the church was not even established as of yet would Jesus have spoken to Nicodemus about something that was not even practiced yet Plus, we know baptism doesn't save anybody. You do not get baptized in order to be saved, but because you are saved. It's your testimony of faith. Others say it's a reference. The water is a reference to the Word of God. I believe that's the best way to explain this. Water was often used as a symbol for the word of God. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of the washing of water by the word. In 1 Peter 1.23 it says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that through the word of God he had been saved because he had learned of his sinful condition and he had learned about Jesus as his Savior. Folks, not only must we have the witness of the word of God, but secondly, we must have the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and works on a lost man's heart. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Think about what takes place when we're justified. Think about what, what theologians call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Now the order of salvation includes things like justification, sanctification, glorification. Nobody would say glorification comes before justification. Glorification is at the very end when we see Jesus. But think about how the ordo salutis applies even under justification. God regenerates you, enabling you to believe and repent. Now, it's instantaneous, but theologically speaking, God regenerates you, quickens you because you were dead, and as He quickens you, you repent and believe. As Wayne Gruden points out in his systematic theology, we tend to think that we believe and then God regenerates us. He says, but Scripture seems to turn it the other way around. God regenerates us, enabling us to believe. 
Lazarus is a good illustration here. Lazarus, when he was dead in the tomb, wasn't hanging a white handkerchief out the window of the tomb saying, Hey, Jesus, you're passing by. Come, don't forget about me. No, where was Lazarus? He was dead in that tomb. His dead body was laid up on a slab in that tomb. And what did Jesus do? Jesus said to a dead man, Come forth. He only came forth. Because Jesus called him to come forth. That's what happens in salvation. God quickens us. God calls us, quickens us, regenerates us, enabling us to repent and believe. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says the same thing. Now folks, all this happens, like I say, all this happens instantaneously. We don't, we don't discern all the differences that's going on, but God quickens us, regenerates us, enabling us to repent and believe. What we see there is that salvation is of the Lord. Just as you did not birth yourself physically, so you do not birth yourself spiritually. We convert, but it is God and God alone who regenerates. You know, people think incorrectly. They think they can just be saved anytime they want to kind of yawn, you know, ha, ho, hum, I'll think about that in five years from now. It's not the way it works. God makes one spiritually alive. He quickens you. You come alive to spiritual things. This is the spiritual birth. And so to be saved spiritually, to be born again, what do you need? You need the Word of God and you need the ministry of the Spirit of God. Both of those are absolutely essential. And that's what Nicodemus needed to understand. Now folks, there's a mystery to all this, isn't there? Hang on with me just a minute longer. I'm almost done. Maybe. <laughs> All this is a complete mystery, isn't it? And isn't that what Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus here? Isn't that exactly what he told him? Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Mystery to it, isn't there? Folks, why do you think maybe a woman can be sitting on a church pew and she's moved by the things of God and her husband right next to her is dead to the things of God? Or a parent is hungry to the things of God, the child next to them is dead to the things. Why is that? Because it's a mystery. The Spirit of God blows where He will. He breathes on one, but not another, at least maybe not right then. And so the gospel is preached, an invitation is given, one comes to saving faith in the Lord, one turns away and goes out in lostness and darkness. There's a mystery to it. Who can explain it? Nicodemus, of all people being a spiritual leader in the land, should have understood this. But again, the point is... It, the, the point that is not a mystery, the point that is not a mystery is this. Jesus said, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, 
you must experience the new birth. You are more than flesh and blood. Man, man has a spirit and a soul and that spirit needs to come alive and be quickened to the things of God and that's something that only God can do. Today maybe you realize you're dead to the things of God. You're dead. Dead. Just like Lazarus. You're all dressed up with religion, but you're dead on the inside, just like Jesus said of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? He said, you're like white, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. The Pharisees looked all religious and dressed up on the inside. I, I mean on the outside. But on the inside, they were dead. And maybe that's you Today. I believe with all my heart that I'm speaking to a number of people here today. You are dead to the things of God. And unless something changes, unless you come to Christ and God regenerates your soul, you're going to be just like that rich man in that parable that Jesus told one of these days, you're going to be saying, I am in agony in these flames. And there is going to be no relief for you. And it is going to be too late. Come to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that salvation is of you. It's your work. But the Bible also says that you will not turn away anyone who comes to you. Lord, I believe that's what some need to do today. They cannot go to heaven the way they are. They've got to be born again. Lord, work your work in their hearts. Convert them. Change them. May they be born from above. Born of your spirit. And Lord those who have experienced that blessed wonderful new birth. May we never get, get over it. May we never get over it. May we live lives of gratitude. May we live in holiness. Because now, as you're born again children, we can live for the things of God. And Lord, this year, may we have a tremendous burden for those who don't know you. May we witness to them time and again. And as we do, we ask for your Holy Spirit to get a hold of their hearts. Thank you for the new birth. Thank you for changing us. Bringing us from death to life. And that we might live with you eternally in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.